Welcome to Ruminations. It is Hug Hamatzot and Shomerman and Shlomo are here. And this is our rumination for this week. We'll begin with the blessing for the Torah. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshanu BeMitzvotav Etivanu LaAsok BeDivrei Torah VeArevna Adonai Eloheinu Et Divrei Torateka BeFinu Ufi Amka Beit Yisrael VeNiye Anaknu VeTzeEtzeinu VeTzeEtzei Amka Beit Yisrael Kulanu Yodei Shemeka VeNomdei Torateka Lishma Baruch Ata Adonai HaMlamed Torah LeAmo Yisrael Amen. All right, take it away. Well, got a lot of territory to cover. Um, based off, it's a busy time for everybody. Um, but I hope everyone had a meaningful Pesach. Amen. Anyway, I want to do a little brief um, excursion into the previous week's rumination from Parashat Zav. And it's Rumination 25. People who refuse to say yes to the Almighty's commands can never expect to truly know his will. <laughs> you know how everyone says, oh, I want to know the will of God. Right. You, hear, you hear this a lot. Um, you know, like, should I take this job? Should I buy that car? Buy that house? And the list goes on. Um, but what should be of chief concern to us is that Hashem has already revealed to us His will. Right. This is the Anuki from Exodus chapter 20, where it says, I wrote myself down and gave it to you. That is the acronym of Anuki, the opening of the Ten Commandments. What's interesting, it begins with the Aleph, which has a combined gematria of 26, the divine name. And so it begins with the Yod of Hokma of Abba on the tree right. of life. So ultimately, he's revealing through the emanations of the Sephirot his divine purpose and will. For the Torah descended from Hashemayim along with the letters. Yes. Only problem was the Israelites are down there with the Arab Rav with the golden calf. So what's taking Moshe so long to come down? We expected him to come down six hours ago. Right. You know, and, and the rabbis are really go on about that one, the six hours, you know, they expected him at a certain time, but they forgot that you need to account for the full day, not just yes. a partial day. In Hebrew thinking, sunset to sunset. Yeah, one of the things I think about is the Aleph has the Vav in between the two Yods, you know, and so you have Yisrael and then you have uh, Moshe up in Shemaim, you know, so you have the heavens and you have the earth. And what divided those two was the six hours, you know? And so I haven't seen a source for that, but I just see the picture, you know, of the olive, you know, going on where it's like there was something that came between those two 
that that divided up as it were the heavens and the earth because when we made a calf we decided this is Hashem heaven is now on earth you know kind of thing so we in a sense made our own Aleph you know and this actually goes back to Parashavayikra where it talks about the little Aleph you know which was Moshe who was humble and that's juxtaposed to the large Aleph in Chronicles, which was Adam, because he made himself very big, very grandiose. And because of the haughtiness, he caused the fall. So just kind of thinking about that as you were speaking. Oh, nice. Nice connection there. Um, yeah. Um, I did a little gematria on the two words of uh, Nekiba and Zakir. If you subtract the gematria of Nekiva from Seker, you have 70. The gematria for the letter Ayin. Hmm. In connection with, and Eve looked on the fruit and saw that it was good to make one wise. Right. That was pleasing. The fruit or the tree was pleasing to the eyes and good to eat. Um. But again, this goes back to the point of this rumination. Every, everyone wants to know the will of God. Say, oh, I want to pray about it. I want to seek God when we have his revealed will. You know, every wow. time an important decision is presented to a follower of Messiah, we, of course, want to know what Hashem's will is. The problem with that approach is, that it's often that we forget that Hashem has revealed his ultimate will to us already. It seems somewhat trivial when we consider the commandments of the Almighty as his will, but the commandments of Scripture comprise the most precise and fullest measure of his will that we can know. His instructions are loving instructions for our good. That much must be clearly seen. But often those who seek to know God's will have no intention of obeying his simplest of commands. Consider that he spoke creation into existence. Consider that his will created something out of nothing. And yet that will reveals only general knowledge of the Holy One, blessed is he. The commandments that he gave us on the other hand, reveal his infinite wisdom and his righteousness. That is very specific, which takes us back to why people don't want to obey him. So how much do you want to know his will? Which is directly linked to the mitzvot. Mm -hmm. That are a shadow pointing to Mashiach. Right. He's the, he's the one casting the shadow. You, you know, you've probably heard it many times, just like I have. Oh, I see Jesus. But yeah, no one's seen him. Yochanan writes in his first chapter of his gospel, no one has seen him at any time. The only begotten. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, John's very Kabbalistic in that statement, by the way. It's, that, that can be a very deep subject to explore. Um, but the one word that John does use is uh, Yaqid, that he's in unity with the purpose mm -hmm. of the father and that everything he sees and does is the father that sees and hears 
and he's just merely repeating. So in some ways you could see, say, see that the Gospels are Mishnah Torah in some respect, just like Devarim is. Right. Yeah. Well, because the thing is, it, it really features a lot of the, the text of the Tanakh, as well as when the word itself took on flesh, like the word was speaking, you know, so like the speaking word is going on. And we do know that with Devarim, it is Moshe having the Shekinah of Hashem speak through his throat. So it literally is if the word did take flesh and speak, you know, because it was just kind of like Moshe nullified himself to such an extent that it was as if, you know, Hashem was able to directly put his words into his mouth to the point that when Moshe would say, I, you know, it would be Hashem saying, I, you know, like just. It's just neat and, and incredible to think about because when Yeshua is walking around, that's the case constantly. Like he lets us know, like these things that I'm saying, uh, these aren't my words. They're the words of the one who sent me. You know, everything that I'm doing, this is not my will. It's the will <laughs> of the one who sent me. Yeah. You know, so it's literally like the word of Hashem is able to move and animate this body and move around, you know, and, and speak and engage and interact with people. So to think of that being what the gospel accounts uh, give us as far as um, record and incidents and occurrences and things like that. I mean, that's just a very powerful thing to think about. I just thought of another connection physical that points to the spiritual is um, what do they make Torah scrolls out of? Flesh of sacrifices. Of a kosher animal. <laughs> kosher animal. The kashrut regarding the Torah scroll is more strict than in other areas of kashrut. That also includes the ink that is used, the quill. Everything involving the production of a Torah scroll is exact. So that reminds me of the, the Midrash that's connected to the Akeda, the ram that was offered up uh, in Genesis 22, that was considered to be Yitzhak, you know, Isaac, and every part of that ram was used. And I don't have it in front of me, but it was just a beautiful Midrash about what the sinews were used for, what the skin was used for. The big popular one is that the horns... The, the left was used for Mount Sinai and then the right will be used in the time to come, you know, to sound the shofar blast of Hashem kind of thing. So, you know, it's just really neat to think about in the production of a Torah scroll. Like that's the case. <laughs> that's interesting because Shaul says at the last Trump. So right. I think, that, I think there's some support there for that. Um, that, I mean, what Shaul's doing, he's drawing on those Midrashic um, Agadic themes regarding mm -hmm. him. So, yeah, I, I would definitely go along with that. I mean, 
that day, I think that day is coming sooner than any of us expect. I mean, because of the events that we're seeing. Um, but also, you know, it's, I'm also reminded that, you know, our people seeing Mashiach in me, because that's also how he comes. Is, are we living it? Are we walking out the commandments? As, right. our, master, as our master did. Because, you know, self-nullification is a principle of Kabbalah. Um, you know, the rectification of our nefesh, ruach, and neshama. And the word neshama happens to mean breath. Every word that emanates from our mouth should be the breath of life, not Amen. death. You know, there's, there's so much rectification that our master performed in his day um, for us and the whole of creation that had to be redeemed. This, this is the major theme of Pesach that I've been exploring. And this is one of the things that the writer of Hebrews writes about, that he once and for all offered himself up without defect. There was no, not even a little spot, a, a hint of Avera, you know, of sin. And he sat down at the right hand of authority mm. and thereby makes atonement in the heavenly Mishkan on our behalf. Amen. You know, you sit down and, you know, our custom in my family is we like to eat uh, lamb because it's a Sephardic custom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we eat, that reminds us of, I mean, we know that the master wasn't the Paschal lamb at all, you know, because it's not a sin offering. You know, this, this is the source of a lot of confusion in, in Christian circles regarding, regarding this. Um, because when we offer up the Paschal lamb, it's a remembrance of the exodus from Egypt. And the things that Hashem did to bring us out, that generation out, that's what it's there to remind us of. And that's why we sit down at the table and do the Seder. You know, like the plagues and recounting uh, the frogs mm -hmm. and so forth, you know, the 10 plagues. Um, and how you smear blood on your mezuzot and your uh, doorpost. Um so that the angel of death would pass you by <laughs> when he struck the firstborn. Um, yeah, all that's a reminder, you know, that we, that we should be living it. Um, it kind of brings me to this next part here. Um, Can we touch on one thing real quick? Oh, sure. Because, you know, I, I sense a hot button when you say, you know, Yeshua wasn't the, the Paschal Lamb, you know, yeah. and things like that because of everything that's connected to that, all the details. Well, actually, one of the things we have to do is understand what all the Corbinot are, you know, because there's one aspect of the Paschal Lamb, but then there's also the goats of Yom Kippur, both of them, actually. Because we need a scapegoat, we need an atonement goat, you know, and then we have our daily Tamid offerings, you know, so it's just like, was he that offering? Was he this offering? You know, he was crucified on a stake. So that's not how we offer Corbin Oak, 
you know, because we offer Corbin out inside the temple. So then it's like, well, there is one Corbin that we offer outside the temple. That is the red heifer. But there's a whole burning process. There's a whole Cohen who has to go out there to follow himself. So it's like, well, okay, so he's offered outside the court like a red heifer, but then he's like atonement, atonement blood, like a, 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 a daily tamid offering. And then it's like, well, he died for our sins, but he also was making tacoon for mankind. So like, you, you know, you got all these pieces, right? So I just want to uh, shout out to um, Ben Burton Schlita from Ladder of Jacob that he brings this down from Exodus chapter 12, verse 13, where it says, the blood shall be to you for a token on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. So there's your Paschal lamb. It's all about the blood that causes Hashem to pass over us. And it says, and there shall no plague be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Mitzrayim. So that's Exodus 12, 13. So here's what Ladder of Jacob comments. The question may be asked, how can the Passover sacrifice be considered an atonement for sin? It is important to note that all the korbanot, all the sacrifices, all the offerings derive their merit from the Akedah, from the binding of Isaac. So you have to wonder why was the binding of Isaac and the crucifixion so alike? Why are they so um, synonymous with one another? Because the Midrash Rabbah, I got to actually post this on Instagram this week. So on my Shomerman Instagram account, shameless plug, I posted this because it's so important to know why did Abraham place the wood on Yitzhak? And it says it literally, he placed it on his shoulders, like one who carries his crucifixion stake to his own demise. So you do have this aspect of Paschal Lamb being the Akeda, right? So that's aside the point. I just inserted that, but here's the well, deal. I could um, interject there for a moment. Um, yeah. So basically, when Abraham and Isaac arrived at Moria, and they saw the place from afar, and it took them three days to get there. Yep. And he literally places the etz, etzim, on Yitzhak's shoulder, just like our master had to bear the, the, the beam on his. So, yes. Right. Yeah. So, and the crazy part about it is that's the same mountain that Yeshua was offered on. <laughs> so, same mountain the temple was destroyed on, which according to the Messiah text is the suffering of the Mashiach because Hashem is speaking with Mashiach and saying, do you accept this suffering upon you? And Mashiach was like, it's, it's enough for the servant to be like his master. Because the whole context is Hashem is suffering because of the destruction of the temple. So the Mashiach is like, well, I will have my temple destroyed, basically. You know, this is where the gospel account is a beautiful overlay into that medrash where Yeshua says, 
tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. You know, so here's where the rest of the commentary says the Corbinot, the offerings are all facets of a singular diamond and are interrelated. The Pesach is connected to the red heifer. The sacrifice of the leper, which, by the way, is considered to be a dead man. Uh, so we have this whole aspect of bringing someone from death into life. Uh, then it says the Yom Kippur and the daily Tamid offerings. Where do we find this? Pasikta de Rab Kahana. Concerning the meaning, Kevasim, which is Helams of Numbers 28, verse 3. The disciples of Shammai and the disciples of Hillel defer. The disciples of Shammai read Kevasim, as though written Kevasim. They that they put out of sight. That is the daily offering of the lambs bring about that God puts Israel's iniquities out of sight. As the verse tells us, he will put out iniquities out of sight, which is yikbot. And that's from Micah 7.19. But the disciples of Hillel said the phrase kevasim. Bene Shana, which is he lambs of the first year from Numbers 28, verse 3, is to be understood as though written Kevasim Bene Shana, which is that they cleanse the things which are many of a year. That is, the daily offerings cleans the sins of Israel, as it is said, though your sins be as many of a year, they shall be white as snow. Isaiah 1.18 And Ben Azai said, the phrase Kevasim Bene Shana means that they cleanse the sins of the people of Israel and make them as innocent as an infant in its first year. Each lamb will serve as an advocate for Israel on the day of judgment. And the this is from Pesikta de Rab Kahana, Pisca 6 4. So, just a, a really interesting thing to think about because, yes, we're talking about the Paschal Lamb, but what's the Paschal Lamb related to? You know, and what, what context is it in? It's ultimately in the only begotten son who was offered up by the father. Are we talking Yeshua or are we talking Yitzhak? Because both of them were called Ben Yahid. <laughs> the way the commentator describes it, it would seem to be one and the same. Yep. Um, it's also interesting that he quotes from Micah 7, 18 through 20, you know, um, I have it open here in my Tanakh. Miel Kamoka, who is a God like you? I mean, what's interesting there is uh, Micah's name is spelled out in those first few words. For the Mi Kamoka, Micha. Miel Kamoka. Wow. <laughs> wow. No se avon ve over al. 
Lishari Makalato Lo Hekazik Lead Apo Kihafes has said, Ooh, you have the Sephiroth in these verses. And also in my study of Kabbalah, this is the Arakan Pin. This, these verses describe the Sephirot within the Sephirot. We're counting the Omer right now. Um, and today is, um, I guess. Ode Shev Kesses. Yeah. Honor. Yeah. Honor within Hased. Man, come on. And you have the word Hased in here, in this verse. This is the microverse you're looking at. Yeah, I'm reading this in Hebrew because you kind of lose it in the English because mm -hmm. we need to get the full force of what's being said here. Yeah. Because this whole, these three verses are a mess going back to Exodus. Mika who is like you among the heavenly powers? Yeah, that's the song at the sea. Yeah. I mean, it's what this, this was what, Reminds me of that. You know, then later on, you know, T10 Le Yaakov has said La Abraham, Asher Nish Nishat Le Avotenu Kedem. You show truth to Yaakov and kindness to Abraham. Because the Midrash states concerning Yitzhak is that. When Abraham had the blade at his throat, that the nefesh of Yitzhak departed immediately, and it went Straight into to the throne. Yeah, it's. They also say it went into the cave of Machpelah. Wow, which is the gateway to Gan Eden. That's yeah. what. The, that's what the sages say that his nefesh went to. Wow. That's incredible. I was reading a source about that this week that was talking about Hebron and Moriah being like directly across from each other or not too far apart. And so to know that the gateway to Shemaim is Mount Moriah and then also the gate, the entrance to Gani Din is through Machpelah. Now, what I think about that is how Hashem fashioned and formed Adam on the Temple Mount, and then place them in the garden, mm. which would have been through Machpelah. <laughs> yeah, because that's, that's in Hebron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's amazing, man. I mean, it's, um, yeah, it just you got that gravitational pull, you know. It, it just it just draws you there. Um, the other reference to that would be when the three. Men appeared to Avraham in the heat of the day while he was recovering from his Brit Mila. Yeah. And typical of, of Avraham's primary trait of Hased, he gets up anyway, even though he's feeling, you know. Yeah. He's pretty down, you know. Um, yeah. Definitely in a lot of pain. Yeah. <laughs> ain't no joke either in those days. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um but he they gets say the up. third day of the Brit Milah is like the, the worst pain. And this is the day that those angels showed up. 
So like, as we're reading that account, think about this is the worst pain. This is the third day. And it's very, <laughs> and he gets very up. personal, <laughs> you know, and by the way, we're talking about someone getting up on the third day. Like, seriously, <laughs> our master walking out of the grave yeah. after, after what he went through for us. After what he went, yes, exactly. And then when you were talking about the will, I thought, mm -hmm. if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, your will, not mine. Right. The ultimate act of self-nullification. He had no um, awareness of his own egoism, his own ambitions, his own life. Yeah. That's what it is to do the will of him who sends you. All right. That's what going back to where we started, you know, like you want to hear Hashem's will, right? Know it for your life. You have to be nullified. <laughs> That's it. That's what performing the mitzvot's about. Uh, mystically. Nullification. So we talk about immersing ourselves in the mitzvot, right? So it's interesting that the word for nullify is betul. So if you rearrange the words for betul, you get the word tabul, which means immerse. So this is why Yochanan, John, is actually not called John the Baptist. He's actually called Yochanan Hatovel, John the Immerser, i.e., Yochanan from the word chesed or, or chen, Yochanan, china, or, uh, not chinam, um, chanun, those kinds of things. It's like all related to chesed and grace and uh, compassion, loving kindness. So the chesed of immersion, the chesed of uh, nullification, basically, is what we're looking at which is why the waters of Yochanan are known as the waters of Teshuvah. So he immerses us in the water, and he says the one coming after me will immerse you in the Ruach HaKodesh and in fire, which we also know is Torah. Yeah, the other thing Yochanan says, the immerser says, I must decrease and he must increase nullification yeah, it's kabbalah man i love you know, it i you know i've been learning the meditations and i one of them is the four archangels mm -hmm. um michael on your right um gabriel on your left uriel is before you and Raphael is behind you but then above you and enveloping you, immersing you is the Shekinah. Wow. Michael yeah. on my right, establishing Hased. Gavriel on the left, Gavurah, strength. Uriel up front, guiding me, my steps, that my steps may be ordered. It is written in Mishlei, the steps of a righteous man are ordered of Hashem. Mm. 
and then Raphael, Rafua, Rafua Na, he who heals us. He's behind, and you focus on where your spine connects to your pelvis because that is um, Yesod, the foundation from which life comes, the seed after its kind, that he may bring healing all throughout my body. And then you think of the Shekinah. When you put on your keeper, blessed are you, Hashem our God, King of the universe, who crowns Israel with splendor to merit. Dude. <laughs> it's an wow. awesome meditation, man. It's, it's changed me. I, well, you I talk know. about a prayer closet, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that. That is a prayer closet, like just covering this is what you. What like master that. means when he says, "Go into your closet," the mystical. Yeah, it is. It is very powerful, you know. Um, uh, this book, this audio book, I have is so fantastic. David A. Cooper, he's phenomenal, and he explains the Kabbalah that it really does connect you with the supernal. Wow. When done properly. When you have a firm grasp on it and then you start getting into the result and the writings just come alive and you realize your connection to it all. Yeah, that's what Kabbalah is all about, connection. Yeah, you know, receiving. You know, because it comes from the root word cabal to receive. Mm-hmm. Um, and cabal is kuf lev, the 100 of the heart. Mm. <laughs> yep. You know, we talked about before that there's 100 blessings that we should recite a day, you know, which correspond to the sockets of the Mishkan. And so knowing that your heart will be founded on the hundred brakot that we're to recite a day. So when you're reciting brakot, you're doing more and more decreasing of yourself. You're literally setting your heart up on a foundation of self-nullification, which we know our heart is wicked. It's, des- it's deceitful and it's desperately wicked, right? So how about subject that to Hashem's nullification process? And that's how you have a new heart. You have a transformed heart, a heart of flesh. And the heart of flesh is to be circumcised. It's to cut off the the impulse of the evil inclination. It's really hard to follow your Yetzahara if you're in the middle of connecting to Hashem and receiving from Hashem as you do the Brako, and as you do the meditations. Absolutely. Um, you're in a state of elevated consciousness. You ascend above your physical intellect, the yesh, through the Atzmus. Yeah. Um, you know, it brings a deeper meaning to when it says that our life is in the mitzvot. Oh, yeah. The true life, the true life that comes from Hashem that literally brings life to our bodies. Yeah. 
I mean, when we truly understand the mitzvah that we're performing, I mean, really understand it, that it becomes who you are. You know, you do it from a sense of simkah, of, of love for Hashem. Because we see in the Shema, you know, Be'ahavta et Adonai. Eloheka beko levavka. We see the two baits there. Both sides of the heart or both inclinations are there involved. You can take the impulsive nature of the Yetzir Hara and make it for good. See, this wow. is the test that Hashem constantly gives us. If our faith, if our emunah is to be true, and if our emunah is to be deep as it should be in him, then we'll constantly be tested like gold tried in fire in a hot furnace. It's purified of all impurities. And thus we come out on the other side. But see, we can use the Yetzir Hara's impulsiveness to do good. To say, hey, yes. you know, I'm going to do this today. I'm going to do this right now. You know, not, not a minute later, you know. No, now's mm -hmm. the time for the Braca, you know. Now's the time for the Tefilo, you know. Yep. Don't um, delay. You know, today's the day of salvation. It's right now. We have the opportunity. It constantly gives us the opportunity to say yes. And this is why those who just say no or look for excuses or are stuck in the theological box of listening to their pastor will never truly know this. You know, that you and I and Ray have come to know. That is yeah. so important, you know, every day, day in and day out. It's not looking for that spiritual high, which I, we've pointed out before in, in previous episodes, um, where we're looking to live as Mashiach did day by day, faithfully walking out the commandments that others will see. Because mm -hmm. it's written in Zechariah, and they will cling to the tzitzit of a Jew and say, we want to know the God of Israel. That's right. Got to give them something to grab onto. Yeah, just like the woman did who had the um, infirmity for, what was it, 18 years? Uh, Y'all have to look at that. I think it was 12 or 18, one of the two. Oh, it was 12. And spent, yeah, and she, she was connected to the 12-year-old girl. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, she spent all her money. Oh, boy, this is big. She spent all her money on doctors and got nowhere. Yep. What are people doing today? Yeah, it's Luke 8, 43. It says the issue of blood for 12 years. She spent all her living on it. Yeah, see, there's some depth there. I mean, it's... Well, the crazy part about this, how intentional she had to be because there was a crowd pushing in on all sides, you know, and Yeshua's on his way to somewhere else. Like he's not, he, he's, he's on a mission. <laughs> he's completely oblivious to her. Yeah. That's the interesting part. Luke doesn't even say or intimate that he's aware of her being there. But then all of a sudden he Dude, says, yeah. wait a minute, virtue's gone out of me. And the woman was afraid. Oh, boy, well, I, what did I just do? You know? Yeah. She's like, oh, snap, I broke some. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, your issue of blood is now broken. It's gone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no more, uh, you know, uh, nida. 
perhaps. Yeah, no more Zaba. Yeah. I mean, you know, but that's the thing. He's the leper messiah. He cares for those who are afflicted with death. Wow. I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And that abundant life only comes one way is when we walk out the mitzvot, you know, in our obedience to Hashem. You know, it shows just how much we love him and respect him. It's an interesting word for uh, the virtue that was gone out of Yeshua. It is ability. I think so, some other uh, translations use the word power. Yeah, but literally like an enablement. Which I don't know if this is. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Give me some Hebrew to work with. Let's see what this word means. You have the Dalish there, or <clears throat> I was using the. What is this thing called? Let me go back here. This is the Thayer's Greek lexicon. And so what it normally does is it finds a Septuagint um, equivalent of the word, of the Greek word. So the, the Greek word is dunami or dunami, which is dunamis, dynamite. So what I immediately think of is Ezekiel chapter one, and it uses the word hashmal, which is the flashes of lightning that surrounded uh, the, the throne between the four living creatures that were surrounding it. It says there was these lightning flashes that were going on, which is probably the sparks that we saw from Mount Sinai. Uh, sparks of holiness, perhaps. Um, yep. Um, so what was that verse in Luke? Uh, it was in 8, uh, chapter 8. And so verse 44 should be the verse, I think. I just got out uh, the Dalish because I, I want to see it. <laughs> okay. The Dalish may have a different Hebrew word, which would be very, very welcome to get into that that would be really cool it uses the word yakul here in the lexicon which yakul is first used in genesis 13 verse 6 and that is when avraham and lot part ways and it says, now Lot, who was traveling with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land was unable to support both of them. So the ability, it says the land was low yaklu. The land could not support the land had not the ability, and it uses Lashevit Yachdav. 
So the land did not have the ability for them to dwell together, basically. So when Yeshua is talking about what went out from him, it was this supportive, this enabling, this power. Uh, Did you get your daylage there? Yeah, I'm at that verse. Um, What you got? He karba makarav ve tiga the kanaf begdo via a mode zo dameha pite om. There was a woman with a discharge of blood for 12 years who has spent all of her livelihood for healers and no one was able to heal her. You know, you have uh, uh, Refata. See, that's... Refua, Refua Shlema. And so now, you know, I go back to the, the meditation on the four archangels and the Shekinah. Um, you know, because, you know, back in verse 40, when it says, you know, when Yeshua returned, the people welcomed him because they all have been waiting for him. There was a man named Yair, and he was the leader of the synagogue. He came and fell at Yeshua's feet and begged him to come with him to his house, for his only daughter was about 12 years old. It's interesting that Luke makes uses this as a connecting, as a connection the two because the woman had this same issue for 12 years you know as yep. you pointed out earlier i mean i think luke's being mystical here yeah because we know luke is a doctor yeah you know and the way it reads in hebrew you you know hotziah and call uh mikiata the rafaim uh, you know, none, nothing came of it. You know, ain't ish, le rafata. You know, nothing came of it. Okay, so it uses yakol. Yeah, and wow. you know, you see, also see the word ain in there as well. You know, ain't nothing. Oh snap! Wow. Okay. You know, you immediately start to think, um, you know, or in self, perhaps the divine light, because that's what maintains creation. That's what keeps us alive. That's what Shaul says in, uh, I believe, Acts 17. For in him we move and live and have our being. Mm-hmm. You know, but it wasn't for the divine light, you know, creation would not be because it's, it's in the blessings of the morning prayers. Blessed is he who maintains creation. Create. Yotzer Hameorot. <laughs> oh my goodness. Dude. I mean, wow. And then she, you know, it says she drew near from behind. That's like Leah, who um, is hidden behind. Sarah, yep, come on, Arizal, bring it right. Is the if you're standing, if you are seen from behind the Zeranfine, the the nine 
the six superior that comprise the body of Zerontine, right? If you're looking at it from behind, the light is diffused. She approached the master from behind. The light is diffused. She doesn't get the full force, but then the moment she touches it, that's socked. Yeah. 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 And she's healed the boat. The, the Nida is gone. So the light is so powerful that it removes impurity. This is why no one can stand in his presence. You know, if we go back to Exodus 34 and when Moshe asked, you know, show me your glory, your tiferet. And Hashem tells him, if I did, you would die. You'd be yeah. You would be consumed. But the back of me, you can see. There we go. See, now we have the back of Zer again, getting into the Ari once again. Yeah. And now and there's your spine connection that you were talking about, the spine into the, uh, what did you uh, say, Raphael. the base? Yeah. Uh, Raphael. Okay. You yeah. have the connection of your spine to your pelvis where the sephira of Yesod is, the foundation. Yeah. Where life emanates from the seed after its mm -hmm. kind. And which, that's the lower, right? But then when the spine connects to the skull, that's where the loose bone is, which is the bone for resurrection. Um, so now we're getting into that sock. Mm -hmm. <coughs> uh, victory. And when Shaul says he's victorious over death, he swallowed it up. What does he yeah. say, Colossians, that he made a show of it openly? Yeah, the, the public triumph. Yeah. He led captivity captive. It is uh, Colossians 2.15. Oh, well, we talking about powers, right? <laughs> and yeah. ability or not ability. Well, the verse literally says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the crucifixion stake. Which again, this is the, the beauty of knowing the Akeda, the Genesis 22, from a Kabbalistic standpoint. You have Abraham, who is chesed, nullified into Givura through the fire and the wood. So through the crucifixion stake, you have this nullification thing going on. Powerful. <laughs> it's powerful. You know, all this should help us become more like Mashiach, you know? Yeah. You know, I can easily see how meditating it, it, on these things uh, is so helpful as well as the Brocco, because remember, and I actually learned this from Rabbi Trugman Shlita, I didn't even know when we speak words, it's considered action. 
because we have thoughts, we have our speech, and we have our deeds. Well, all three of those are actions. I did not know that. So literally, when you're thinking, you're meditating. Your speech, that's your bracha. Your deeds, that's the mitzvot. You're creating worlds. Literally. You know, when you tap into the world of Asira, as he's mentioning, we've touched on this um, in a previous episode, that the letters vibrate at a certain frequency. And I'm talking about the Aleph Bet, not, not any other language, because when the Midrash says, and he looked into the Torah, and then he brought about creation, um, the Adan Olam prayer, when all has ceased to be, you alone will reign in splendor. I always think of that prayer. You know, it's um, <laughs> it's really powerful, man. It's, um, but yeah, it's um, really, you can get really deep with it. Um, but so many people make the mistake, you know, of assigning a form to Hashem, you know, and they always use, you know, Jesus as God and all that. And, you know, it's, you know, it, it shows, you know, that they're so into their theological box that their pastor's theology and understanding has become their own rather than searching the scriptures for themselves. But the problem is, you know, they're searching the scriptures with the understanding of being in, in Christendom, not not from the Jewish perspective. Yeah, got to um, start over. Got to start over. Yeah, you have to got to throw it out the airlock. <laughs> You yeah, know, that, that's you know that's what I had to do. You know, me and too. Yeah, you know, I really didn't have a problem doing that because a lot of the questions I had, there was you know, could they just could not answer them because they were so deep. And and now I am finding the answers to them on a personal level. In which yeah, but you have to be willing to be at a place of holding on to a question with not knowing the answer at the moment. The key phrase there, at the moment. You know, because that's the biggest thing that keeps people uh, in the church is, you know, the fear of, you know, if I let go of this, then, you know, then it's Gehenna, you know? Uh, if I if I do something different than my grandfather or than what the pastor tells me, you know, it's just like you have to be willing to let go of man. You have to be willing to let go of anything that's not Hashem and start from that source and flow out. You know, you don't have to forsake Mashiach because remember, Mashiach is bound up in Hashem. Mm hmm. There's no, there's not really a way to let him go unless you're just completely making up a shim and just going into something weird. I don't know, but <laughs> it's, it's like this, this huge, like you have to lose your life. You have to kind of lose your mind in order to find it kind of thing, because 
when you're in Christianity, when you're in the church, when you're under a pastor, you're locked into that theology. And if that theology is not based off of Torah, then now you're putting yourself in a very precarious position because if your foundation is not the Torah, then your well, your cistern is broken. And we already know what Yermiyahu, Jeremiah, tells us about trying to drink from broken cisterns. It's contaminated water. Yeah. So this is why questions will come up and there's no answer for it. Why, why put a tree in your living room, sit around it for however many weeks and look forward to one particular day that you will bow down to it to receive gifts from it? Yeah, that's, um, I had a, got into a discussion with, uh, someone in the Hebrew roots movement, um, regarding Passover and how you observe it. And we all know it's oral Torah, you know, Masaka Peskaim. Um, well, yeah, as typically is the case, so it's okay to pronounce the name, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. You know, when I saw it going that direction, I decided to bow out, you know, for my own sake, you know. Super because, smart. You know, because the thing is, they don't know that they're committing Alvera, Avodazera, because you are assigning a form to Hashem who is formless, the limitless mm-hmm. nothingness. They ain't so. They have no conception of this at all. It's because they're still wrapped up in Christian theology. They just change days from Sunday to Saturday. Jesus to Yeshua. Itaki uh, Yehezko does this. And he's quite blunt about it. And I agree with him. Wow. You know, he, do, he does not pull any punches in his teachings. He doesn't. And I like that about him. My wife and I love him. We will sit and watch. He just tells it like it is. And we need to hear that. You got to be yeah. willing to be teachable. Be teachable. There is another point of being able to understand the will of Hashem. It takes a teachable person. You know, humility. You know, the sages go up and down about arrogance. You know, if you look through a window, you see the world. But what happens when you put Kasef on that window? Mm. What happens to it? It becomes a mirror. Wow. That word has two meanings. It also means money, but it also means silver, which is the component used in mirrors. And all you see is yourself. This is a Hasidic tale, a very allegorical story, but yet it has a lot of uh, practical meaning for us. Wow. Like another great Hasidic tale is the man who came to the Baal Shem Tov and asked him, you know, master, I never have enough money to do tzedakah. Mm. And so he pronounced a blessing on him. And after that, you know, Hashem gave him the ability to do tzedakah. But as time went on, he started to become irritable and started getting tired of all the poor of the town coming to him, you know, for charity. And finally, you know, 
he posted a guard at his gate, you know, to get in with instructions not to let anybody in. Wow. And so the Baoshan told dresses up in the finest uh, suit, hires a really nice chariot with a horse, and rides over there. He shows a coin to the guard, and the guard lets him in. He goes into the house, and he, and he converses with the man. And he notices on the wall a mirror. And he takes the mirror off the wall, and he tears the cassette off of it and holds it to the window and asks him, what do you see? I see people. And he holds it to him, and what do you see? People. You know, and he had the kasef in his other hand. And I said, what is this? And he said, kasef. But what is the other meaning of the word? Money. And then he says, money used wisely can bring blessings to others. <clears throat> and so the man was very sorrowful. And he vowed from that day forward that he would continue to give tzedakah. And so he did. He became legendary in the community wow there's another nullification mm -hmm. we need to be careful with the things of this world it can easily rob us of our spiritual connection i was just thinking of um this is one of my favorite books the sabbath by abraham yosef heschel and mm -hmm. i'm always I always come back to this and I'm going to read this. Um, we are all infatuated with the splendor of space, with the grandeur of things of space. Thing is a category that lies heavy on our minds, tyrannizing all our thoughts. Our imagination tends to mold all concepts in its image. Our daily lives, we attend primarily to that which the senses are spelling out for us. To what the eyes perceive, to what the fingers touch. Reality to us is a thinghood, consisting of substances that occupy space. Even God is conceived by most of us as a thing. The result of our thinginess is our blindness to all reality that fails to identify itself as a thing. As a matter of fact, this is obvious in our understanding of time, which being thingless and insubstantial appears to us as if it had no reality. Indeed, we know what to do with space, but do not know what to do about time, except it to make it subservient to space. Most of us seem to labor for the sake of things of space. As a result, we suffer from the deeply rooted dread of time and stand aghast when compelled to look into its face. Time to us is a sarcasm. A slick, treacherous monster with a jaw like a furnace, incinerating every moment of our lives, shrinking therefore from facing time, we escape for shelter to things of space. The intentions we are unable to carry out, we deposit in space. Possessions become the symbols of our repressions, jubilees of frustration, but things of space are not fireproof. They only add fuel to the fire, to the flames. Is the joy of possession an antidote to the terror of time which grows to be a dread of inevitable death? Things, when magnified, are forgeries of happiness. They are a threat to our very lives. We are more 
harassed and supported by the Frankensteins of spatial things. It is impossible for man to shrink the, the shirk the problem of time. The more we think, the more we realize we cannot conquer time through space. We can only master time in time. The higher goal of spiritual living is not to amass a wealth of information, but to face sacred moments. In a religious experience, for example, it is not a thing that imposes itself on man, but a spiritual presence. What is retained in the soul is the moment of insight rather than the place where the act came to pass. A moment of insight is a fortune, transporting us beyond the confines of measured time. Spiritual life begins to decay when we fail to sense the grandeur of what is eternal in time. So this is why the first mitzvah given to us upon our freedom from the trying was time. It's where time and eternity connect. Wow. Where the finite gets a taste of the infinite. It's through time. <clears throat> and thus you go to Exodus 20, um, you know, remember, you know, Sakor at Yom Shabbat. Mm-hmm. Remember, Rashi comments that the ver- on the verb in, in the grammar, that the word Sakor is an infinitive verb. And he comments that we are always to be conscious, to keep it holy, always. This is why when we do the song of the day, we say today is such and such day of the Shabbat. So if we're doing the second day of the week, for instance, Monday, it would say today is the second day of the Shabbat and the Levites in the temple would recite. Always keeping the Shabbat in mind. The most coveted of days. Wow. So time is... uh, quantified in the life of a Jew through the Shabbat which is a fraction of the eternity mm-hmm. Yom Shekelot Shabbat a time wow. of all Shabbat that time is coming Amen. just wanted to bring up one thing uh, when we were talking about Abraham and Yitzhak and then Hashem and Yeshua that uh, Pesachim 118 says the Holy One blessed be he said to him speaking to me uh, who was he speaking oh Gabriel he was speaking to Gabriel he says uh, I am unique in my world and Abraham is still unique in his world so basically Hashem says, I am Yahid, I am unique, I am the one and only. And just like I am in my world, in, Abra- in the world where Abraham dwells, Abraham is Yahid. And so you have this picture here of Hashem is one, Abraham is one. 
So yeah, that's great. That's always been one of my favorite sources because when I think about the Akeda and how are we talking about Yitak or are we talking about Yeshua, it's just like, yeah. <laughs> Certain aspects of the patriarchs point to the master. Abraham was a said, Yitzhak was Gibura, Yaakov was Imet. But each was put in a situation where they had to um, use the other. For example, Abraham was always put in a position where he had the Gibura. Right. Which means Yaakov, he's put in a situation of both. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we're talking Ari Kampin, you know, especially with Yako, who's on the yeah. level of, um, of, let's see, Hased. Yeah, that's according to this chart I've been studying. Um, yeah, it's pretty incredible. I mean, it, it's one of those things you really just have to sit there and meditate on. Yeah, to get the uh, the full meaning of it, because the other thing about yeah, as I mentioned earlier about Micah's uh, seven eighteen through twenty, it's yeah, Arakan King, um, because it's in that chart, and I saw that, so I'm like, oh man, this is like off the rails, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's fantastic, you know. I mean, a little background about myself. I was big on astronomy and, and science. But oh, well, this is second nature to you then to look at the, the Sephiroth. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, you know, is um, I remember Carl Sagan's Cosmos back in the 70s on PBS. You know, there was some truth in that series. But unfortunately, he was missing the gravitational pull, the one behind it all. Yeah, by the way, Rabbi Trugman brings down that the Zodic is gravity to creation. Because he was bringing about the fact of the sun having so much gravitational pull around it to keep all the planets in their proper place. That's what the Zodic does, that it keeps everything in its proper place. He has such a gravitational pull to him. Oh, man, now I think of the Nakash in the wilderness. As Moshe lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must this Ben-Adam be lifted up. We're mm -hmm. talking Mishkan here. Yeah. Betokam. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the son of man, the Ben-Adam be lifted up, he will draw all men to himself, to Hashem. Right. So it brings us to the gravitational pull, you know, Passover and the revelation of gravitational pull. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> Pierre Simon Marquis de la Pace was born in 1749. He was a brilliant French mathematician and astronomer who is sometimes referred to as the French Newton because he summarized and extended many of Sir Isaac Newton's theories with regard to mathematical astronomy. Pierre Simon Laplace's <clears throat> place as a great scientist and mathematician is assured by his five-volume work, Celestial Mechanics, in which he describes the nature and movement of celestial bodies 
and mathematical language. The primary focus of Laplace's work relates to gravity using the known effects of gravity's pull on celestial objects. Laplace was able to explain many things such as the movement of planets and stars, knowing what gravitational pull reveals the mass of an object such as a planet or a star enabled him to be the first to describe the invisible star of what is known today as a black hole. When Pierre-Simon Laplace presented his work, Celestial Mechanics, to Napoleon, the French leader asked him, Monsieur Laplace, tell me, you have written this large book on the system of the universe and have never mentioned its creator. Known for his arrogance and confident of his mathematical process, Laplace responded, I did not need to make such an assumption. Sadly, Laplace did not understand that the heavens revealed their creator. He did not understand that the very principle that he described of how the invisible force of gravity can reveal the presence of an otherwise invisible object is in fact a biblical principle. It is also a general principle of life that if you look for the gravitational pull, you can begin to see things that otherwise would be hidden. This lesson is about gravitational pull and how it can help us rediscover something that otherwise may have been forgotten. This lesson will be about Passover. But before we look into the idea of the invisible revealed by a gravitational pull, let me tell you a story. Imagine with me for a moment. It's about 2,000 years ago. We are Galileans traveling to Jerusalem for the annual Passover celebration. Three times a year, we went to Jerusalem for three pilgrimage festivals mandated by the Torah. They were Pesach, Sabaoth, and Sukkot. The first festival in the annual cycle is Passover. It is a week-long celebration. It is a joyous time when we celebrate the fact that the Almighty rescued us from the bondage of Mitzrayim. Amen. <laughs> Amen. The celebration begins with the actual Pesach Seder, the Passover meal, and then continues through the next seven days in which we also celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of First Fruits. All of our celebration is outlined in the Torah in Leviticus 23 and other passages. And all of our traditions that surround this celebration are correctly focused on the Almighty and His redemption. As a people, we have been celebrating this for nearly 1,500 years. We normally travel in large groups from the villages we are from. We are coming from the village of Kafar Nahum, Capernaum, on the shores of Lake Kinneret, Sea of Galilee. To avoid Samaria, we traveled the easy route down the river valley of the Yarden and ascended from the plains near Jericho to the mountains of Yerushalayim. When we came over the mountain and looked down at Yerushalayim from the village of Beit Pagay, the holy city seemed to glow. Closest to us where the, we descended from Har Zetim, the Mount of Olives, was the gleaming glory of the Beit HaMikdash. The road from Beit Pagay winds down Har Zetim into the eastern gate of the Beit HaMikdash. As we walked down the road, our master rode on his small donkey. Many of us lined the way and sang the Hallel, the psalms that are traditionally sung during Pesach. 
It is always wonderful to enter Yerushalayim at festival time. There are always songs that we sing as we approach the holy city, but this Pesach was even more exhilarating as more and more people began to openly speak of our master as the long-promised Mashiach. For the past few months, each morning, afternoon, and evening, as we prayed with our master, we have begun to understand the importance and fulfillment of many of the memorized prayers and how our master was, in fact, the one for whom we were praying that Hashem would send. We wanted Mashiach. We prayed for Mashiach. And here he was in our midst. Our master was the Mashiach. During the week leading up to the actual beginning of Pesach, we spent the night on Har Zetim with other villagers from the Galil region. It was wonderful being that close to the Beit HaMikdash. In the mornings, we will walk across the Kidron and enter the eastern gate of the Beit HaMikdash to participate in Sakharit, the morning prayers, and the morning to meet offering. Afterward, our master would teach in the portico of the Beit HaMikdash. In the afternoons, we would pray Minka, the afternoon prayers with our master at the time of the afternoon Tamid offering. Sometimes we would pray Ma'ariv, the evening prayers there at the Beit HaMikdash. And sometimes we would pray from where we stayed on Har Zetim, facing the west and the Beit HaMikdash. It was a very satisfying few days leading up to Pesach. There were a few moments of unease but even those were quite satisfying. One of those was when our master threw over some of the tables that the merchants had set up within the Beit HaMikdash. It was something that pleased more than one Hasid. Over the years, the Zedekim in the priesthood, particularly the Kohel, the Kohel Gadol high priest office had turned the Beit HaMikdash into a center for their political and monetary efforts. They had actually set up special temple bazaars with their own currency using all manner of legal loophole to enrich themselves. Yeshua, our master, pleased many with his cleansing of the Beit Hamikdash of that rabble. Talk about the Arab Rav. <laughs> really? Yes. Like a golden calf scenario yes. going on? Yes. That's what you got going here. If you have, you get this imagery in your head, you know, and you begin to realize what's being played out here. I mean, it's, a, it's incredible. Because, wow. you know, the action that he took, flipping over the tables, getting everyone out of there, expelling people from the camp, quote unquote. You know, you have that whole picture going on with the golden calf when Moshe gets back. Because he's all like, all right, if you're with Hashem over here, you know, and then if you're not, okay, let's go, let's go handle business, go purify the camp. Yep. Which resulted in 3,000 people dying. Now, just to think about that whole <laughs> picture, right? Because you're making such a like ridiculously amazing connection. There were over six. Hundred or no, no, no. There were over uh, six hundred thousand men, right? There, because there was six hundred thousand Jewish men. Which, if you double that, you're you're over a million people, right? So, when you're looking at the ratio, three thousand people compared to millions of people, right? 
Like, think about what that actually means for the people who not only may have been enticed by the era of Rav, because also we we can't just go and throw everything at the era of Rav, because to a certain extent, why why would you allow them to pull you away from Hashem? You know, right? So no one no one is uh is guiltless there because even Aharon himself was like, you know what, just just go ahead and do it, you know. We'll we'll do this until Moshe gets back, you know, because he's like he's trying to push it off. He's just like, oh, tomorrow will be a festival, you know. Moshe didn't get back yet. And it's like, oh gosh, today's the day. Oh boy, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> so even to the point where Parshash <laughs> Mini comes up and he's all like, Man, I can't go up there. I can't be the Cohen Gadol, you know. <laughs> and it, the Midrash is like he sees the horns of the altar and he starts seeing the horns of the golden calf. And so he's just like this whole cold sweat comes over him he's just like oh i can't do this you know so just to think about what's going on with yeshua just being like okay everybody get out you know like wow that's an amazing connection i never thought of that before you know what's uh, also just <laughs> blue screen of death is that hashem says the people that you brought Oh, ho, ho. yeah. I mean, me? I brought them, but you're the one. Yeah, <laughs> you're the one that's doing all this. What? And he's part, he's got a makoka going on, right? Because you know that's the incredible thing. He's got the chutzpah. The <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I was just blown away by that. You know, but yet he was the Zadik. He could. Mm, mm, mm. You know. Wow. You know, yeah, you're right. You can't blame everything on the Arab Rav. They made, you know, the B'nai Yisrael made the choice to engage in Avodah Zerah. Yeah. Make building the golden calf. But what's interesting, why does the Torah tell us in the plural, not the singular? <laughs> Elay. Elohim Yisrael. These are your gods, Israel. Why does the Torah find it necessary to, to use the plural, Elay? Uh-oh. Yeah, because there was only... not restricted to just a single event. There was only one calf. Yeah, but there are <laughs> many. Yeah. And look at it. See, here's the other thing is that... Oh, those the, who the make lamb, it We're, we were talking about it. the Pesach lamb, right? I and how it. it's worshipped by the Egyptians. I was just listening to uh, Pincus Levin today, um, and he's talking about how Moshe went before Pharaoh and said, hey, you can't slaughter this thing here. The Egyptians will get upset. That's why we need to go out into the Bar and do this thing. What they, but what the Torah tells us in Exodus 12 that they slaughtered the Paschal Lamb while they were still in Goshen. Goodness. Which has the same gematria as Mashiach. Yes. You know. <laughs> Man. And Pharaoh's telling him, you know, go ahead and do it. You know, don't worry about it. It's like he's leading them down the garden path. Right. Oh, I want them to do this, you know, so the people will rise up and kill him, you know, in that kind of scenario, you know. Yeah. You know, it's, but... You know, thankfully that did not happen, but 
that's the thing, you know, the Torah implies a lot of things that are not necessarily there. You know, reading between the lines. Mm-hmm. I think this is why some people have such a problem with the Talmud, the Oral Torah, you know, because they think, oh, the rabbis are just making up. No, they're not. They have a source. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a sham. Yeah. You know, I confronted that person with this fact, you know, and he just, oh, I'm not making it up, you know, and then this and that, you know, and then that's, you know, that's so unfortunate, you know? Yeah. Like our, like Simon LaPlace here in this story, you know, he's just, to him, it's an inconvenient truth. Oh. Yeah. The, to think about the power of what would have happened for him to nullify all of his accomplishments into recognizing Hashem. Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things you were saying with with all the planets and the gravitation, the invisible star, I mean, what? Um, I was thinking about the Seder plate <laughs> because they look like little planets, like these circles going around the plate here and i'm like what holds all this together oh there's you know, johannes's kepler johannes kepler's three laws of planetary motion mm -hmm. um a planet moves in an ellipse with yeah in an ellipse with a focus at one end the second law states that a planet sweeps out equal areas in equal time the third one states a planet's orbit is equal to its period, the time it takes to go around the sun. Oh, my gosh. This reveals the creator. It doesn't stop there. The sun revolves around the center of the galaxy. <laughs> it orbits around the center mass of the, of the Milky Way. And then the galaxies move around in the local group. I could take this all the way out as far as possible. Because the other problem we're dealing with here is those people who think the flat earth, that they think it's a dome. No, it's a sphere. Hashem created a three-dimensional space. If you're a two-dimensional creature, you cannot perceive a three-dimensional space. Hmm. But that's how Hashem created us, to occupy a three-dimensional creation with the fourth dimension, that being of time. Wow. So I was thinking of Colossians 1.17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. <laughs> nice. That was awesome, man, once you understand him, you know. Right. All right. Keep going. Where are you at? Okay. Yeshua, our master. Oh, did I mention he was Mashiach? <laughs> <laughs> uh, was always caring for us even when we faithfully followed him. Apparently, without our knowledge, he had made plans for us to have our Seder in a house in the city within the walls. Oh, what a privilege that would be. 
this was no small feat during the week of Pesach when Yerushalayim swelled to 10 times its normal number of inhabitants. Okay, stop. Time out. <laughs> Time out. The, uh, what? This, there should not be a place to have a Seder in Yerushalayim. It's a pilgrimage. You talk about reservations, you know, he's like, <laughs> when Yeshua was born, there was no room in the end. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just like, oh, we're going to have a Seder. It's fine. We got a space. Yeah, don't worry about it. It's lots of people here, but we got a little space. We're good. But it's like, but you couldn't find space for when he was born? Like, born? <laughs> That's pretty big, man. I, but still, born in humility. Yeah. You know what? Moshe in the basket in the Sea of Reeds. In the basket. Come on. The Teva. Hey, that's a hen. Avey Noach, Matza hen. Yeah. And nay, Adonai. So, when he's in the Teva, where is his next habitation? The palace. Oh, now we're getting into Esther. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> like, obviously, he goes back to his mom, but before he goes back to his mom, they're shuffling him around the palace. Like, you nurse him. No, you nurse him. I can't nurse him. He's, he's not taking my milk. You know, and it's like, okay, where are we going to take him? You know, and he goes back to Yocheved. It's just really interesting, man. Just so there's the the setter in Yerushalayim, and it's totally a place already prepared. Oh man, now I'm thinking, uh, Yochanan, I go to prepare a place for you. Wow, wow, dude! I just think about like you know, if you're gonna go on a trip, you got to book the flight, you got to book the hotel, you got to book all your reservations, right? And it's just like Yeshua was like, "I got this. It's already done." What are you worried about? Yeah. Come on, man. <laughs> Dude, Who do people say I, the son of man, am? <laughs> yeah. I just think that's so epic. Like, there's there is a place for them to have their center during one of the most busiest times of the year. Everybody's bringing their Paschal lamb. Because remember, we have to get the hummets out. Yeah. Oh, you've done that already, man. You should be flying. What time? Man, that's crazy. Okay, yeah. sorry. I just... No, no, just that's fine. You, know? you said that. I was just like, is this happening right now? Uh, is anything too hard for Hashem? Oh, man. Is anything too hard for Hashem? Oh, man. When Sarah laughs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Why did Sarah laugh? But I didn't. Yes, you did. <laughs> I heard you, but you were in the other tent. <laughs> okay, a year from now, you're going to have a son. Yeah. No, sir. 
It's it's there in Pesach. It's okay. <laughs> oh boy, it was a seder to remember with, which ironically is what the seder is all about: remembering. The Pesach Center is a meal that is focused upon the redemption of our people from the bondage in Israel. Even before the official Seder begins, we first helped clean the house that we were to use for the Seder. Obedient to the command of removing leaven from our dwelling places, we are reminded of our miraculous speedy exit from Mitzrayim. Symbolic of sin, it reminded us that our bondage and Mitzrayim can be compared to being enslaved to sin and thereby repugnant to the Almighty. Removing the leaven reminded us how God prepares a way, not only for redemption, but for removing from us what offends him. As we sat down for our Pesach meal, our master delighted us by leading the Seder memorial. It was joyful and satisfying. We enjoyed his recounting of the deliverance from bondage. We drank in his allusions to what we thought we understood regarding his soon to be realized delivering of us from the bondage of our Roman occupiers. As we sang the Psalms, we knew that we were on the threshold of something big regarding our master's revelation as Mashiach. That made it especially joyous so even when we left the city to go pray Ma'ariv on the Mount of Olives. We could not sense that he was wrestling with something deep and dangerous. After Ma'ariv, he went further back into the olive trees to pray alone. And yet we still did not realize the extent of that approaching danger. We have sensed some of the danger in that the master had angered the Zedekim and particularly the Kohen Gadol, and yet we did not anticipate what happened that night after prayers. Of course, our master always knew. It was ultimately his very plan that this night would be different from every other night. He had always planned that this would be the time. Our problem was not that the master had been unclear but that we were unaware how grand his plan of redemption from bondage really was the next day merely hours after eating the Pesach Seder with us our master was hanging from an execution stake outside the city walls imagine our shock the joy of the Seder now replaced with horror how was it possible that Mashiach would be put to death of our number, only Yochanan witnessed the horrible scene that was beyond our worst nightmares. It seemed that at the threshold of redeeming us from the bondage of Rome, this one, like unto Moshe, our Mashiach, had failed. The powerful Zedekim had used their Roman collaborators to snuff out our redemption in the very season in which we celebrated our redemption from bondage. Maybe he wasn't Mashiach. Three days later, of course, we had a much better understanding of what kind of master it was that we had followed for these three years. It was after Shabbat that it happened. Some of our women had helped prepare his body for the tomb, but had not finished because of preparation for Hag Ha Matzah, the piece of unleavened bread. Now, 
three days and three nights later, the sun has set on the night of the seventh day of the week. And all over Yerushalayim, families concluded Shabbat with Havdalah. As it grew dark, the first day of the week began. The women went to the tomb that night. And in the dark, when they arrived there, the tomb was empty and their master's body was gone. By morning, we had all been informed that the master's body was gone, and some in our group began to understand that our master had actually risen from the dead. By the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, all of us had seen him risen and very much alive. The joy of our Seder had been briefly interrupted by the horror of his death, but it soon returned all the more with the revelation that our Mashiach was far more than we had ever imagined. He was Mashiach. He is Mashiach. For 40 days, he appeared to us and taught us from the Torah and the prophets. On the 41st day of the Omer, he gathered us together on the Mount of Olives again and told us to remain in Yerushalayim. Sabaoth was only nine days away. Each year after that wonderful Pesach Seder, we remembered our master during the Seder. Yes, we remembered our deliverance from bondage in Mitzrayim, redeemed by the outstretched arm of the Almighty and led from bondage by Moshe. But we also remembered that we have been redeemed from the bondage of sin by the outstretched arms of the Master, one who was like unto Moshe. Each Pesach, one of our young children would recite the traditional questions during each Seder, we smiled as we remembered and answered the question, why is this night different from every other night? Yes, Master, we still remember you. Remember our mathematician, Pierre Simon Laplace? His work showed how otherwise indiscernible objects and forces can be revealed by examining the forces that move them and nearby objects. Historically, we might say that Passover is like one of those invisible things in which massive size is revealed by the forces that react around it. Um, are you familiar with the laws of gravity? An object moves in a straight line, unless acted upon by an outside force. No, I was not aware of this. Yeah, that's the first law of gravity. Of gravity of motion so there's a straight line unless there's an outside force if i were in space and i were to like say throw a baseball that ball will continue in that course unless acted upon by an outside force like say it starts to get close to the moon the moon's gravity is greater than the gra gravitational influence of the baseball the baseball is going to be moved towards the moon Wow. Okay. Okay. The other thing about gravity is this other part of the equation is what's called angular momentum. That is the speed of the object going around another object. In this case, okay. the planet around the sun. Right. In other words, there's this balance, this equilibrium between the gravitational force wanting to pull the object to it and then the object's movement around, like say the sun. 
because the sun exerts a tremendous amount of gravitational force, but the planet is moving at such a speed that it does not fall towards the sun. Or pull us off the planet towards the sun. Yeah. But see, our planet rotates at the exact speed it needs to on, on its axis. Yeah. To keep the equilibrium. Yeah. I'm but tracking to keep, you but, now. But to keep an Earth's mass at the core is sufficient that it keeps us planted on the Earth. While at the same time, it doesn't spin so fast that we go flying off into right. space. Yeah. It's just the but right all, speed. But all this reveals the intricacy of the laws that Hashem put into place. Yeah. Because this is the, the Ten Commandments. They're interrelated to each other. Yeah, you this can't violate you can't one. do away with one. Yeah, go. You cannot violate one because you will unravel all the others. Yes, that's exactly what I was going. It's an intricate, it's an intricate web. Yeah. But ultimately, um, mystically, it's the mind of Hashem. Every time you pick this up, every time you pick this up, it's him. So ejecting the mitzvot is like doing a lobotomy. You can't say you walk with Messiah and yet you reject the Torah. Oh, that's interesting because Yochanan says that. No one can say that they love him and not walk in the commandments. Because the master himself says, if you love me, Shomer mitzvot, keep them, guard them, treasure them. Man, so I'm in the Jewish hand, uh, the handbook of Jewish thought, volume two, and it's talking about love of God. And the point that I was on uh, earlier was about uh, loving God has to do with getting to know him and his teachings, which I thought was beautiful because Isaiah speaks about this, saying that all nations will come to Zion, seeking to know the way of Hashem. You know, and so there's this whole thing about the whole world coming to love God kind of thing in the in the time to come. But in the meantime, those of us who do love Hashem, in order for us to really love Him, we have to get to know Him. And we get to know Him through His Word, through His teachings, through the commandments, through the mitzvot. You know, so, I mean, it, it was just a, a, a neat thing to see to bring some concrete uh, thought to something that I've always known my whole entire life. It's like, yeah, because you got to love God, you know, and it's just like, OK, well, love God, dwell in him, abide in him. He abides in you, you know, and it's just kind of like, OK, what does that look like? If you're not studying Torah, there's not a way for you to grow in your love. You don't have any physical uh, proof or tangible proof uh, that that shows otherwise. So, yeah, that's the question I ask. You know, what are you? We have an inward and imperishable faith, but on the outside, what are you showing me that you love Hashem? Yeah. Is it a life that's been redeemed, that's being transformed, your mind's being renewed, 
that you become a living, breathing, walking Torah scroll. Because this skin, we need to make it kosher to house the Torah. That right. animal, that animal has to be offered up. So there's more getting mystical again, you know, regarding the animal that is offered, the skin of a kosher animal that is used to write down the the words. And every oh man, this is huge, man. Every scribe goes through years of training describe a Torah scroll and the one instruction that they are given is that if you even so much as leave out a space you will destroy the universe wow. yeah <laughs> no pressure <laughs> yeah really uh, okay <laughs> alright cool just gonna write five books of Torah real quick <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah. Hey, just want to shout out because we're talking about perfection and becoming a Torah scroll. Well, I'm on uh, the YouTube and I just want to point out this gentleman here, this very beautiful gentleman. It's probably blurry, but uh, this is Yosef. Yosef uh, Reichman Shlita. And he has a video that he just posted uh, earlier this week called Rising to Perfection. And if you haven't checked that out, check it out. Because he gets into talking about being worthy of receiving the Torah on Shavuot. And how Sephirat Omer is that process. Because we know that in Shemot, Hashem says, I need you to go get the people and bring them back to this mountain. In other words, the purpose of Pesach is Shavuot. Hashem didn't just leave you alive so that you can stay in Egypt. He didn't leave you alive so that you can leave Egypt and hang out in the desert. He didn't just leave you alive so that you could leave Egypt, go to the desert, and get to the mountain. Like, there's so much more, you know? And so, Sephirat Omer is that process that transitions us truly into our freedom like okay yeah we're free but now what are we going to do with it what does that life look like yeah that's interesting because um had israel not committed the sin of the golden calf they would have entered the land more immediate to take possession yep. of it but you kind of blame this one on the Arab Rav and the B'nai Israel, because not only did the golden calf, but also the rebellion of Korach and the sin of the spies. I think the, yep. sin, of, the sin of the spies capped it off. That's it. Okay. Hashem goes, that's it. You guys are going to wander. Anyone 20 and over, your carcass will be falling in this wilderness. Yep. Age yep. of accountability. You know, that's a stern warning for us, spiritually speaking, that we should be very careful because to avoid those things that pollute us during this time as we're counting the only. Yeah. Because we're ascending the levels of purity. Uh, a good book to read is uh, The Gates of Repentance. 
I think during this time, um, that definitely helps. Um, but I'll continue with our essay here. Okay, remember Pierre Simon Laplace's response to Napoleon on the question of the absence of the creator and his calculations? He said, I did not need to make such an assumption. It seems that when men decide to ignore the Almighty, they can easily come up with false substitutes. We see this so prevalent today. For Laplace, it was mathematics. It was his idol. In history, there is a thing that masquerades as a uh, holy convocation when it is not. In history, there is something that has taken the place of Passover, but in the eternal plan of the Almighty, it has not. In the history of the church, a wicked scheme succeeded in obscuring the biblical reality for many believers for centuries. Beloved Easter, is not Passover. But like Pierre Simon Laplace's celestial mechanics, you can know about a massive object that has been masked or obscured by seeing the gravitational pull. Even in the polemics of wicked decrees of men regarding the forsaking of Passover in favor of the rites of Easter is evidence of the biblical Passover. Immense efforts to stamp out Passover, they revealed that the true believers long rested, resisted many of the pagan influences of the early Christian church. There were many Kassadim who held fast to their faith in Yeshua and obediently remembered him in the Passover. It took ridicule, persecution, the threat of excommunication, and even the threat of death to stamp it out. It took hundreds of years, and only now is it once again being recognized for what it truly is. In the early second century, men like Justin Martyr did their best to try and persuade believers to abandon the Jewish feast days. Justin Martyr, in his dialogue with Trifo, the Jew, wrote, For we too would observe the fleshly circumcision and the Sabbath, in short, all the feasts if we did not know for what reason they were enjoined you, namely, on account of your transgressions and the hardness of your hearts. Although it is clear that if one reads the scriptures that the Sabbath and the feast are feast of Hashem, Mater assigns them to Jews as some sort of anti-Semitic curse. In recounting what was occurring in Ephesus and elsewhere in Asia Minor, Martyr's polemic reveals a gravitational force. There were a significant number of believers who still held fast to remembering Yeshua and celebrating Passover. By the middle of the second century, the gravitational pull of Passover becomes more evident in the desire of wicked men to stamp it out. It is, how, it is known as the uh, Quarto Deciman controversy. In large part, the assemblies in Asia Minor remained steadfast to remembering Messiah's redemptive work by celebrating Passover and rejected the attempts to de-Judaize the followers of the Master. In Rome, however, and in regions particularly under its influence, church leaders were insisting that believers abandon all evidence of Jewishness in their worship. 
they insisting that Easter should replace Passover, whereas the faithful, known as the Quartadecimans, for the 14th, as in the 14th of Nisan, the day of Passover, rejected the notion that a feast to Semiramis, the Babylonian fertility goddess, and the so-called resurrection of her son, Tammuz, referenced in Ezekiel 8.14, is also known as Atatus in the Roman pantheon, should replace the biblical Passover. Even the present dating for the modern Easter comes from this ancient pagan rite. The Roman celebration of Attis is timed in association with the vernal equinox, a solar event, whereas the dating of Passover is lunar. This is why Easter and Passover rarely line up. One uses a biblical dating and one uses a pagan one. Beloved, Easter is not Passover. At the end of the second century, Victor, the Bishop of Rome, began to threaten other church leaders in an attempt to get them to abandon Passover in favor of the Roman Easter celebration as a means to celebrate the resurrection of Messiah. Polycrates, the Bishop of Ephesus, wrote to Victor in his response to these threats. We, for our part, keep the day, 14th and Nisan, Passover, scrupulously, without addition or subtraction. For in Asia, great luminaries sleep who shall rise again on the day of the Lord's advent, when he is coming with glory from heaven and shall search out all his saints, such as Philip. There is John, who leant back on the Lord's breast. There is Polycarp, bishop and martyr. All these kept the 14th day of the month as the beginning of the Paschal festival in accordance with the gospel, not deviating in the least, but following the rule of the faith. Last of all, I too, Polycrates, the least of you all, and my family has always kept the day when the people put away the leaven. So I, my friends, after spending 65 years in the Lord's service and conversing with Christians from all parts of the world and going carefully through all Holy Scripture and not scared of threats, better people than I have said, we must obey God rather than man. Amen. Yep, that's Stephen, Acts 7. Or actually, uh, John and Peter, uh, Acts <laughs> 4. Yeah. It may appear by reading the official church records that by the end of the second century, the Roman influence to do away with Passover was successful. And yet, the gravitational pull of the invisible Passover is still evident in later church decrees. Apparently, it was more difficult to stamp out the celebration of our redemption than church history has led us to believe. It took a Roman emperor to settle the matter, or at least so he thought. Roman Emperor Constantine, who claimed he had converted to Christianity from sun worship, ordered the Council of Nicaea and thereby the church leaders to solve the controversy over certain issues. Passover was one of them. In the decree that came from the Council of Nicaea, in 325 CE, we read, Constantine, August to the churches. When the question arose concerning the most holy day of Easter, it was decreed by common consent to be expedient that this festival should be celebrated on the same day by all in every place. It seemed to everyone a most unworthy thing that we should follow the custom of the Jews in celebration of this most holy solemnity who polluted wretches having stained their hands with the nefarious crime are justly blinded in their minds. 
It is fit, therefore, that rejecting the practice of this people, we should perpetuate to all future ages the celebration of this rite. And a more legitimate order, which we have kept from the first day of our Lord's passion, even to the present times, let us then have nothing in common with the most hostile rabble of the Jews. Which, you know, that's the Romans passage that says a partial blindness mm -hmm. has fallen upon them. And to think about throwing out the Yom Tov, throwing out Torah study because of a partial blindness that has been divinely mandated. You know, that is showing that obviously no one's paying attention <laughs> because to say, oh, let's get away from what the Jews are doing. Let's be more anti-Semitic. It's like, well, if these are Hashem's feasts, this is Hashem's Torah, you know, and we know that the Zohar tells us Hashem, Israel, and the Torah are one. Right? So there's that unity there that Hashem was like, you know what? I will allow Israel to experience blindness as a mercy for those who are not a part of Israel. But yet that mercy was taken for granted and a whole new system was created. Like this was the opportunity to come closer to Hashem. And it was like, instead of coming closer, we're actually going to go further away. You know, we'll build two golden calves. We'll spurn the Jews and then we'll create something that is supposed to be likened to what the Jews are doing. And then we'll call this the new Israel. You know, there's the, uh, the dispensationalism that's known as uh, the church is the new Israel. So it's just kind of like, so do you not like Israel or do you like Israel? Because you're claiming to be Israel, even though you say you hate them. But yet, you know, they have they have feasts, they have the scriptures. And it's like, well, yeah, we'll take the scriptures. We'll get rid of the feasts. You know, it's just like this little topsy-turvy back and forth. It's like, so what's your what's your goal? Like, what are you doing? And it's just like, yeah, we're just we're nonsense. <laughs> Yeah, you know, the whole point of this is the gravitational pull, but in this case, it's the pull of the divine light. Yeah, you can't you can't get rid of it. If creation exists, then there that's it, because creation reveals Hashem. You so know, the only way to the only way to really get rid of it is to wipe out creation, which people are trying to do. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing is um, there's this documentary I, I just bought on Amazon. It's um, uh, Evan Shetia, The Foundation Stone. Ooh, wow. I did not know they had a documentary on that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, what Hashem is doing as we speak, he is reorganizing this reality. I mean, we need it. That day, it, I mean, it's it's coming. And th this is this is the world to come right here. There's a reason why the Torah does not need to use that phrase. 
Olam Haba, because it is Olam Haba. <laughs> it doesn't need to use that phrase because that's who it is. Oh my gosh. What is wrong with you? <laughs> Yosef's pointed this out many times, you know. I've taken it a little deeper because if we're leaving it out, you are seeing what it looks like. That's how Hashem is reorganizing this reality, reshaping it back into what was supposed to be. What was will be again. This is another aspect of the gravitational pull. Wow. Man in his decrees, especially in the church, is trying to maintain a speed and trying to avoid the gravitational influence of other objects. But there's one problem. This is Zim Tsum. This is the conceptual space of creation. He exists outside of it. But yet he's both imminent and transcendent constantly. Mm -hmm. There is no escaping that. Um, uh, Rev Yitzhak of Berdici said, you can be for God. You can be against God, but you cannot be without God. So even being against him, you have him. Either way, either way you choose, you cannot be without him. Wow. Blessed is he who maintains creation. I mean, yes, yeah, kind of a profound thought to think about because you would think being without God, how could, how could you say you're not, you're not for God. So you're against God. So you being against God is you having God because what are the consequences of rebelling against Hashem? So the fact that consequences exist show proof that you actually have Hashem. You're, you're still not without it. You're just rejecting it. Which ultimately, as we learn from the Elenu, that the spirit of impurity will be banished from the earth and at that point, everyone will be able to see God and know. So every knee will bow, or every knee will bend, every tongue will confess, and everyone will bow before Hashem. And your name will be one. Exactly. That light that we talked about that's actually on the front side. What's interesting is that when Adam and Hava were created, is that they each had a letter of the divine name. But without those letters, you have the word H, fire. Yeah. Wow. Um, that one, I believe it's in Kagiga. Where the sages talk about that. Um, yeah, because mm -hmm. you got the tree of life there. You have the, the yod of Pokma mm -hmm. of Abba, Abba. You have the Vav of 
Binah of Ema. But without those two letters, you will have fire and it will consume each other. Um, yeah, that's one midrash I've always remembered. <laughs> yeah. The cool thing is you can just source it out by just looking at the Hebrew word for ish and isha. Yeah, I think I have a bookmark in Separia. I have to go back to it. Okay. All right. Well, see. I think we covered quite a bit of ground. So if you want to pick one more point to kind of close this out on. Yeah, it's just a little bit left. <laughs> okay. Okay. But even that did not do the trick. The gravitational pull of Passover was still being felt 40 years later in the Council of Laodicea. In 364 CE, the Council of Laodicea decreed that all who celebrated Passover were to be declared heretics. One would think that with all this pressure, it would be enough to get people to simply move their Passover celebrations to Easter. Beloved, it was not only the dates, it was what it all meant. Passover is the celebration of redemption. Easter is not. The gravitational pull of Passover is duly recorded by those who sought to step Passover out. Into the 5th century, the practice of celebrating Passover was still evident. Eventually, the persecution and the uh, syncretism of the church succeeded in driving Passover from the church. Man-made customs and pagan practices replaced not only the commands of the Almighty, they obscured the very message of our Master, Yeshua's act of redemption. All this gravitational pull reveals the presence of a massive body. Passover was so big that it took 400 years for wicked men to stamp it out from the practice of those who claim to follow Messiah. O oh, Hashem, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthlessness, and unprofitable things. Will a man make gods for himself, which are not gods? Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is Hashem. Jeremiah 16, 19 and 21. We have inherited lies. What shall we do? Now is the time not only to regret the sins against the Jewish people, but to turn to the ways of the Almighty. His ways are pleasantness, and his word is as true for us today as it was for any of his people. From righteous Abel to the beloved disciple John, Passover is about redemption. It is about the outstretched arm of Hashem. By his hand, we will know his name. Within Passover story, we are encouraged to turn and see his hand. The Passover Seder is about the power of redemption. It is the revelation of power. It is so that the name of our God might be declared in all the earth. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you, Moshe, up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Exodus 9.16 It is time for the people of God to embrace the truth of Passover and thereby reject the lie. That does not mean we need to beat our friends, family, and neighbors over the head with the truth. 
to point to the pagan origins of Easter and its miserable history. No, instead, it is a time to lovingly teach one another by example, fulfill the positive commands of our master Yeshua, and be assured that the pagan vestiges and the inherited lies will lose their luster in the brilliance of the Feast of Hashem. May it be soon in our days that all the disciples of Yeshua remember him in their annual observance of the Feast of Hashem. May it be soon and in our days that we renew our dedication to our Master Yeshua in the celebration of the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread and in the celebration of our Master's resurrection on the Feast of Firstfruits. May we all find unity in the counting of the Omer as our Master instructed his disciples. May it, be, may it be soon and in our days that our Master Yeshua returns, that he establishes his kingdom with his Torah going forth over all the earth, and that Amen. all the earth bows the knee to him. We long for him. We want Mashiach now. In the meantime, we remember. Master, we remember you this Passover. Amen. I was just looking at Mishneh Torah, the scroll of Esther, Hanukkah 414. It says, great is peace since the entire Torah has been given to create peace in the world as it is written. Its ways are ways of pleasantness and its paths are, and all its paths are peace. Everything about Torah is peace. You know, we, we talk about wanting world peace. And things like that. And people are using man-made, uh, just man-made whatever. <laughs> man-made ideas, man-made products, man-made, you know, uh, yeah, just man-made stuff. But yet, Hashem was like, my Torah, that's where Shalom will come from. So I think it's very interesting that Pesach, you know, the Festival of Unleavened Bread and Sephirat Omer all culminates into world peace. Because Shavuot's coming. And the, the tool for world peace is what Shavuot's all about. And there's a rectification process from now till then. Absolutely. Um... I think of the parable of the wedding feast that the master gave us. It's a very eloquent picture of the giving of the Torah. Because the, the giving of the Torah is like into a wedding. It's the ketubah. It is. But yeah. provides for our every need. He, he comes to our domain, imminence. And gives us what we need, provides for our every need. Mm -hmm. One of the fifteen blessings in the morning. Blessed are you, Hashem, who provides for my every need. Amen. And what was your mind? There's fifteen of them corresponding to the fifteen Maha Alot of Tehillim. And wow. the steps of the when you ascend. And so, the steps of the Seder. Yeah. Well, one of the things I was going to say, uh, because I 
I forgot, I forgot about it until now because you were mentioning, you know, Easter versus Passover. Well, so far in 5781, there's a tradition that the birth of the Messiah is connected to the tent of Tibet. And Rabbi Trugman in Seasons of the Soul brings this down in the tent of Tibet uh, insights. The tent of Tibet during 5781 fell on December the 25th of the Gregorian calendar. So there's that. Now we're in Pesach and Chakamatso. And on the Gregorian calendar, the day before the seventh day of Pesach, which is the day that the sea was split, that's going to be Good Friday. And it's so crazy because I actually, I wanted to like have a cold Hamoed day off of work. So I was just like, you know what? I just need to take this Friday off. And all of a sudden people are like, you're not going to be here on Friday. Like, aren't you Jewish? <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, I forgot. Isn't it? I guess it's good Friday for y'all. Well, Should you um, be going home the the welcome Shabbat. Go, go, beat it, beat it. Persecute me a little. And <laughs> I won't was, be late. <laughs> it was it was so funny because I didn't I didn't I never thought twice. Like, I'm taking off on Good Friday. It's like, no, I'm taking off on full Hamoa, you know, right? Like, but it was just so funny for some people who were putting two or two together, they're like, but you're Jewish. Like, you what are you doing? You know, and I was like, it's Pesach. But I find it very interesting because when you add the diaspora day, resurrection day will coincide with Akaron Shel Pesach. Oh, <laughs> 5781. Oh boy. So we're all gonna be celebrating like new life, death swallowed up in victory, because that's what the parting of the sea is all about. Like, there were more plagues that happened at the sea to the Egyptians than over the past year. You know, so death swallowed up in victory. The Egyptians dead on the seashore. You know, finally, when uh, Egypt is cut off from us, like the, the place of our bondage and sin, like all of it's washed away, pun intended. You know, and people are going to be like, it's Resurrection Sunday. The Lord is risen. He's risen indeed, you know, right? And so I was actually sharing this with some of my coworkers. And uh, and at, I added in, too, because, again, I was talking about Yosef's uh, video, right? So in there, he mentioned the Bothesians who count the Omer starting on Sundays. They're like, so if Pesach happened on a Wednesday, they're going to wait till the following Sunday to count the Omer as opposed to start counting on Thursday night. So, right. So like even this year, 5781, the both, if you're, if there's still any of those people out there, just come on, get in the Torah. But all that to say, we're all counting the Omer on the right day now. Like Jews have been doing it for centuries, but even both these sins in 5781 will be counting the Omer on the correct day. Gravitational pull. 
So like 5781 is is like such a powerful year already because everyone's being put on the same page. And one of the most craziest things that I'm still trying to ask Hashem to help me with is um, the Mashiach Mondays class that I've been doing that I was talking about Mashiach being a shapeshifter because, you know, you have the transfiguration, you have the Messiah text talking about the Mashiach Ben David shows up to a Melva Makamil as a poor beggar, you know, and, um, what else? Like he was, he looked like the gardener to Miriam when she came after the resurrection to the, to the tomb, she was looking for him. She's like, I thought you were the gardener, you know, the road to Emmaus, the people couldn't even recognize him, you know, all these different things. And the whole fact that, you know, the word made flesh. Well, the word itself is a shapeshifter because the Torah had to rearrange itself in order to apply to a fallen world because there was no such thing as death when the Torah was was uh, before Hashem because no one was going to die. Like before we ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we weren't going to die. You know, all these different things, right? So I say all this to say that you're going to have Christians, you're going to have Bothesians, you know, everybody's looking at this, this time and these seasons on the calendar, and we're all finally looking at the same thing, but from different perspectives. So to the Bothesians, it looks like this. To the Christians, it looks like this. To Jews, it is this. Because again, we don't, we don't believe in God. We know God. You know, and that's a big, big difference. And so um, I was hit with a question, you know, that there's this uh, ancient Egyptian deity who uh, was born of a virgin. He did many miracles. He died and was resurrected. And I'm like, of course, Yeshua. So not only is the shape-shifting in that little category, but it's also in the category of universal mankind that depending on your culture or your religion you're also looking at a shem but you're looking at it and you see this you know and this is one of the most uh beautiful things i think about yeshua's statement to when he was questioned you know what can i do to attain eternal life and he say what does the law say what does the torah say and how do you interpret it because the thing is we know the Torah is universal. It, I mean, everybody knows there's this thing called the Torah. There's a thing called the Bible, you know, and whatever people's feelings are, they know it. But depending on how you interpret it, you know, that's the thing. So with the gravitational pull, it's just this, this beautiful overarching idea that I was seeing and in, in the beauty of Hashem being like, listen, mankind i've given you ample opportunity and i've given you free will if you want to celebrate good friday you're more than welcome to but just know while you're doing that the actual true thing that i have given to you to bring you life instead of death to bring you abundance of life instead of stealing from you you know i've i've given you pesa I've given you Hamatsu. But, you know, you're more than welcome. And so it's just this beautiful thing to where you said, 
we're to do the mitzvot because we are walking Torah scrolls that are openly proclaiming by just our thoughts and our speech and our deeds. We don't have to go around like uh, putting people in a chokehold saying, you will get this matzo, you know, right? She's like, no, I'm going to eat matzo. <laughs> You'll see me eating matzo. You'll be like, what's this guy doing over here having communion every day? Because <laughs> <You know? laughs> to them, it looks like you're eating communion crackers. It's like, why are you doing communion for? What's going on? You know, it's just like, uh, this is halakha matzo. <laughs> Don't you know Shimura matzo's where it's at? <laughs> yeah, no, right? So, I mean, it's just, it, it's such a powerful thing that you said right there because that's that's ultimately what we need to be doing to bring tikkun to the world we're the world is going to be made new it's it's being reordered as you say it's only a matter of time before we see yeshua and before we see the temple the resurrection of the dead and i mean the more we yearn and pray for these things and do things that speed that process up i mean man i'm ready my my constant prayer just just to let everybody know what i pray about (laughs) Hashem in this exile. <laughs> and um, I was saying on one of my podcasts this that I did this week, I was like, as I say that prayer, I get this big booming echo of, well, then you get out of exile. Just there. I was just going to say that. And I was just like. We can do it, see? That's the thing. It's up to us. We yeah, can merit so- the redemption. The problem with Israel and Mitzrayim was. They were trying to live off the merit of the fathers. And Hashem says, I'm not having it. You guys need to get your act together. Yeah. And it's so funny because it wasn't like, oh, I heard God speak or God say. It was just kind of like this undeniable, like I could sense it. It was hitting my thoughts. It was just, it was so tangible. It was just like, you have to get out of exile. It's the mentality. And what's interesting with this story is that exile in Israel in the first oh. century context, they were still it, in exile. They were mentally up here, upstairs. The Zedekim and, and the Perushim, cool. they were nothing more than puppets of Caesar. The Kohen was appointed by Caesar himself. That's how corrupt things were. This is the level of syncretism that existed in the first century. And, and he calls, wondered that the master overturns the tables. He cleanses the temple. He does tikkun. He restores Kedusha in the holiest place on earth. How much more should we be doing that with ours? This. Let's, let's flip some tables. Let's do it. Yeah, you got to, you know, get rid of all the kasef. You got to get rid of the, the avodazera of thoughts that are contrary to Hashem's divine will. Wow. The sages talk about that. One who has contrary thoughts that are in opposition to the will of Hashem. Such a one's Torah study will not be um, efficacious. Wow. Because like the master said, if you put your hand to the plow and you look back, you're not worthy of the kingdom. And we were Man. talking about nullification earlier. He that mm-hmm. shall save his life shall lose it. But he that shall lose his life for my sake 
for my oh, sake. Lishma. Lishma, like Torah Lishma. Yeah. Or like Israel says that towards the end of Parashat Mishpatim, all that we have heard, we will do. I mean, Rukashim. Yeah. Well, that is our rumination for Chag HaMatzot. And uh, I've enjoyed the extended amount of time, and I'm glad we get to do this. So, Rukashim. Me too. It, it was great. All right. Well, I'm going to close this out with a bracha. And I just want to send out a bracha to everyone who's watching and listening that you will leave exile and that you will continue the rectifications and the tacoons in your life that's necessary. And may we all be at a place of nullification to where we can discern the will of Hashem in our life and today hear his voice. Baruch Atah Adonai. Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu torat emet, vechaye olam nata betochenu, baruch ata aronai, noten ha torah. Baruch abai b'shem adonai.